Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are in the midst of a study of Revelation. In this audio, I'm going to cover the whole of chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I've entitled it, The Scroll and the Lamb. Our context is this. In chapter 4, the previous chapter, we saw the throne room of God, arrayed as it were, with the throne in the middle, with him who sits on the throne, God, in the middle and around the throne were four living creatures, and around the four living creatures were the 24 elders representing the church, four living creatures representing nature, and then you have the lamb slain as of God. Well, actually, we're going to see that in this chapter. He's between the four living creatures and the elders. So, we start in verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, book, of course, is scroll, because a book back then was a scroll. It wasn't a book with leaves in it, pages in it like we have today. It was written inside and on the back. This was a reference to the Ten Commandments, which were written on the front and back of the two tables of the law, Exodus 32:15. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides. On the one side and on the other were they written. So there's a reference to the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And then we have a reference also to Ezekiel's scroll of judgments against Israel in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We read this, But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. Ezekiel's told to eat the scroll. And when I looked, this is Ezekiel, behold, and hand was set, sent unto me, and lo, a roll of the book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And then ASB has on the front and on the back, inside and on the back. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. All right, so what we have here is a reference in John, in the book of Revelation, to the old covenant represented by two written documents or I should say scrolls, or in the case of the Old Testament, I guess it was stone. Old Testament law, covenant law, fixed, judgment, judgment. You don't keep the law, you get judged. But now we have a new scroll in the hand of him who sits on the throne, and this scroll represented judgment and salvation. Judgment on the church's enemies and salvation for the church. Therefore, that scroll represents the new covenant. And in my humble opinion, that's what the whole book of Revelation is about, is the establishment of the new covenant. The new covenant starting at the first advent of Jesus, running all throughout church history, passing through the second coming of Jesus into the final state forever and ever, world without end. Amen. Now this scroll that he who sat on the throne had was written on the inside and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. Now the seven seals indicates that this biblion or this book was a will or a testament. Wills had seven seals back then. The will was for the disposition of a kingdom. And of course, the kingdom that's being disposed of is God is saying, I'm giving a king. I'm giving a king. Well, who's the, not the legatee, I guess, you, who's the devisee? Who's the person that's getting willed a kingdom? That would be Jesus. So he dies, and yet he inherits at the same time. But he's the only one that can do that because he's the only person that lived after he died. And of course, that devise that inheritance that we're going to receive is all of the treasures of the new covenant. All right, so Jesus died. He was the testator. We see that in Hebrews 9, 16 and 17, where, where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is valid, valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. So Jesus died so that 
the will could be executed. Now, the will will be unsealed and be read aloud and executed. This is done usually in the probate court or in the lawyer's office. You know how that's done. You've seen the movies. Now, each one of these seals was like the witness of a modern will. In modern wills, when I used to practice law, you took three signatures in South Carolina. Now it's only two. But you have to have these witnesses to go forth and swear before the judge, the probate judge in South Carolina, and say, this I testified this will, and I saw that the testator signed it. Well, in the Old Testament procedure, each witness would come before the judge, identify his seal, and break it. See, yep, that's my seal. I recognize it. I break it. Now you can open the will and see who gets the goodies. So Jesus is the perfect witness of his own will. He can testify, he can testify that the will, signifying the inheritance of the kingdom, is valid, and he is the only one to rise He's the only one who can witness his own will because he's the only one to rise from the dead to glory, as I said earlier. Now notice, we've got God on the throne and he's trying to bequeath something. What is it? It's the kingdom. This is so reminiscent of the imagery in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Let me read that. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days, that's God, and they brought him near before him. So Jesus goes before God. Here in Revelation, we have the lamb standing before God. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. In other words, Jesus was given a dominion. He was given a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His rule, in other words, is lasting forever and it's everybody and forever. It shall not pass away in his kingdom which shall not be destroyed. So in Daniel 7, Jesus, the Son of Man, is receiving a kingdom. In John chapter, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is receiving a kingdom. He is about to open up that will, that testament, which has within it the new covenant, and he's going to inherit a kingdom. And we're going to inherit it with him. So that's what that's where the imagery is going, where it comes from. We go to verse 2, Revelation 5. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? As we imagine this vision, we tend to think of the visual sights that John has seen, but think about the noise. The, not just necessarily the noise, but the, the well, I guess it is noise. A loud voice and also the loud music that's going on. The loud praises, the loud singing in this vision. Well, here we have a strong angel with a loud voice. He doesn't symbolize anything in particular. He's just an angel. Kind of, he's kind of setting the scene for the in, for the divine play that's going on here. He he calls out with a loud voice, "Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals?" Now, as I said, only Jesus is qualified to open the to book. Open the book. Only Jesus is qualified to establish the new covenant. Adam can't do it. Moses can't do it. David can't do it. Nobody can do it. Now, I've mentioned before, and I think I'll mention it again here. This imagery is a little bit off because. Jesus is the testator, and usually a testator doesn't open his own will because he's dead. But Jesus, remember, is alive. In this vision, he is the slain lamb, dead, but he's also a live lamb, and he's also a lion. So, yeah, he can witness to his own death, and then he can inherit from himself, if you will. He can inherit his kingdom. Now, in this book, the book of the New Covenant, as we see as we go through the book of Revelation, the book, or the scroll, will contain seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, or seven chalices, I prefer. That book is the New Covenant. Some say the book is the book of Revelation itself, but I don't think so. If you do say that, well, what's the book of Revelation but a book about the establishment of the New Covenant? We go to verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 5. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. 
Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So this phrase, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, that's a typical Hebrew way of saying everybody, because in heaven it's going from top to bottom, going from up to down. In heaven, that would be the angels. On earth, that would be people or the animals, the cows and the cats and the dogs. Under the earth, that would be the earthworms and the bugs down there. In other words, nobody can open the book. Sometimes that expression is used, heaven and earth, under the earth, and on the sea and under the sea, as we'll see. It just, that's the way the Hebrew said, everybody and all things, the whole universe, nobody is able to open this book. Why? Because only somebody who's been slain and risen from the dead, who can purchase all of mankind from his sins, can open that book, and that would be Jesus. Verse 4, then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. The weeping that John felt was because the new covenant couldn't be established. The only way the new covenant could be established was by that lamb being slain. And he wasn't there yet, not in the vision. Of course, he's, he's coming soon. The weeping that John made was not because of the judgments coming on apostate Israel. He was weeping because the church could not get established because of apostate Israel. You, we could say that John is actually looking at, this situation, looking at this situation from the old covenant viewpoint. After all, John himself was persecuted. He was thrown in jail into exile on Patmos. He knew that the Christians were being persecuted everywhere by the Jews all over the Roman Empire. And so he's crying, when is this going to stop? When is this going to be over? When is the church going to spread across the whole world so that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation can partake of it? Revelation 5, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, of course, these elders, that's one of the 24 elders around the throne, representing the people of God, 12 representing the old covenant tribes, tribal leaders, and the 12 other 12 elders representing the apostles who were the foundation of the new covenant. So these are the people of God around the throne. They're wearing white. They're wearing a crown. And they say, stop crying, John. The lion is there. Now, John's looking at a slain lamb, or he's going to be looking at a slain lamb. I'll put it that way. But... The elders say he's a lion, the lion of Judah. Now, how can he be a lion and a lamb at the same time? Well, I guess it's because in the vision, John saw the slain lamb, but the elders described him as a lion. It doesn't mean that John actually saw the lion in the vision. Now, this lion of Judah, lion that is from the tribe of Judah, as John puts it, is a fulfillment of Genesis 49, verses 9 through 10, which I'll read now. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion who shall rise him up. The scepter, that's the rod that signifies rulership, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Shiloh stands for peaceful one, a name for the Messiah. That's very standard messianic language. There's going to be a lawgiver, Christ, the new lawgiver. He's going to be in Judah. Between Judah's feet means he's in, in Judah. Shiloh comes, the peaceful one comes, until the Messiah comes. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. That's every tribe, nation, people, and tongue that are going to come into the covenant. So that's the Lion of Judah. That's the Old Testament imagery there. And the elders say that this slain lamb is also called the Root of David. Now, this is a strange expression. Isaiah called Jesus, the Messiah, a shoot of David. Isaiah 11.1, 1, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its, his roots will are fruit. Now, I have had a bunch of stumps in my yard. There were a bunch of peach trees that had gotten too old to bear. They were past menopause, and I needed to get rid of them, so I'd cut 
chainsaw one down the next year, doggone it, there's a little green shoot branch shooting out from the stump. It's amazing how nature doesn't want to die. You try to get rid of a stump and you realize how stubborn nature is. Well, here's the imagery, Isaiah says. You have a stump of Jesse, that means the house of Jesse, from the family tree, if you will, and it might be cut down, it's small, it's weak, it's worthless, but all of a sudden the shoot's going to grow, and that's going to be little old David. It's going to become a branch. The shoot's going to grow bigger and bigger. It's going to become a branch. And so from the roots of Jesse, we have a branch that's going to bear fruit. That's called talking about David, who is a type of Jesus. But now in Revelation, the elders call Jesus the root of David. In other words, Jesus is the center of all history. He's the cause of David. He's the creator of David. So John's taking the heavenly view, the root of David. The elders in John, in Revelation, are taking the heavenly view of David. He is caused by the source, by Jesus. Whereas Isaiah is taking the earthly view, David is the descendant of Jesse. Now this lion of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. Now that word overcome is everywhere in Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, it was talking about the churches overcoming all their persecution. And now we have Jesus overcoming death itself. So just as our master overcomes, so do his servants overcome. Just as the son overcomes, so do the adopted brethren overcome. And he has overcome, and he's died, and he's risen from the dead. That's why he has the right to open the book and its seven seals, open the will of the new, that, that establishes the new covenant. We go to Revelation 5, verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. All right, now here we have this famous lamb metaphor. Now, we need to realize something. We think of lambs, and they seem so cheek and meek and gentle and mild. But this metaphor does not apply to Jesus' personality. It is not meant to say that Jesus is gentle, meek, and mild, which, of course, he was to those who loved him. But that's not what the point is. The point of the metaphor is to point to Jesus' work. What did he do? He sacrificed himself on the cross, shed his blood to take away the sins of the world. And that's why it says a lamb standing as if slain. That's the emphasize the blood work or the cross work, as a lot of Reformed theologians like to say, the work on the cross that Jesus did. It's not talking about his gentle personality. Now, the interesting thing, as Bruce Gore points out, that John is the only New Testament writer to use the word lamb. He uses the word lamb, I think it's 20 times in Revelation. He also uses it in John's gospel when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This helps establish that the same author wrote the book of Revelation, the book of John. I don't think too many people doubt that. Now, Bruce Gore points out that in order to be the Lion of Judah, Jesus first had to be the Lamb. In order to establish his strength, he had to be weak. He had to die. One little odd thing here, this Lamb is standing as if slain. And so one might ask the logical question, how can a slain Lamb be standing? Well, it says as if slain. So apparently he's bleeding as if he was slain, but he's standing, which means he lives. He's living anyway. He might be bleeding, but he's standing because he lived. He resurrected from the dead. Now there's three sevens here, seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits. Seven, of course, is the, the number for divine perfection. So we've got seven horns. Horns is the typical symbol for strength. And so we've got divine strength here, this lamb who has seven horns. He has the strength of God. How do we know horns is a symbol for strength there's lots of examples i'll give you one in joshua 6 verses 4 and 5 heavens have seven priests carry seven rams horn trumpets in front of the ark so there's your seven horns right there but on the seventh day march around the city seven times while the priest blows the trumpets 
when there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear it sound, have all the trumps give a troops give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the troops will advance, each man straight ahead. So those seven horns blew down the wall of Jericho. Blowing down a wall takes some strength. So you see the symbolism. A horn also is a horn on an animal. If a bull gets you the way he leverages his strength against your poor, frail body as he uses his horn to do it. Concentrates all the force right there in that small part of his anatomy. So horns of strength, seven horns, seven eyes. Seven, of course, is divine. Eyes means that Jesus is looking everywhere. He sees with divine perfection. Notice the seven, divine perfection. And he sees with divine profession, per, perfection. Seven churches needed to hear that. They needed to know that an omniscient God was looking after them and was going to deliver them. And notice that the seven eyes are the seven spirits, so that means that the Lamb, Jesus, sees via the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Now let's look at the symbolism of seven eyes. We see that in Zechariah 4, 8, and 10, 8, 9, and 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands, hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. For who despises the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. This is referring to when Zerubbabel and Joshua came back and to rebuild the temple in 515 B.C., if you recall the story. And then when they built it, it was so small, people started crying. This is not like the old temple, Solomon's temple we used to know. And Zechariah says, hey... Or the Lord through Zechariah says, don't despise that small temple. It's just the beginning. And he says, you don't need to cry because the seven eyes of the Lord which scan throughout the whole earth, they're going to rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone. I guess that's the cornerstone was Zerubbabel, the governor, the Jewish governor, laid the foundation stone at the groundbreaking for the new temple. So seven eyes of the Lord, they scan throughout the whole earth. There's the idea of omnish. Um, omnis omniscience. We, Jesus sees everything. He knows what's going on. And again, the seven churches needed to know that. They needed to know that Jesus was looking after him. So, let's summarize that. We got seven, this typical symbol for divine perfection. The lamb has seven horns. That stands for omnipotence, all power. The lamb has seven eyes. That stands for omniscience. The lamb sees everything. And the seven eyes are seven spirits, which is the Holy Spirit, and that stands for God's omnipresence because the Holy Spirit is everywhere. I'm grateful to Bruce Gore for that analogy. By the way, Bruce Gore does a much better job on Revelation than I'll ever attain to. I have a few other things that Bruce Gore doesn't have, but not much. And he's much more eloquent than I am. So you might want to check out his, audio, his video series. It's called Apocalypse in Space and Time by Bruce Gore. You can get it on YouTube for free. He's not quite finished with it yet. I think he's teaching it and had to take the summer off. COVID-19 got in the way too, I think. But anyway, he's going to start up again, I think, in the fall, he said. And he's already done a, a bunch in Revelation. And he's really, really learned and good. He, he memorized the book when he was a young kid, I think. I think he said. So he knows it. He also, he's very deep in church history. And he's deep in the Old Testament. He knows a lot of commentaries on Revelation, much more than I've read. So you need to check him out. Now notice that in verse 6, that the seven spirits of God were sent out into all the earth. The Holy Spirit is sent out into all the earth. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit is going out into all the earth via the gospel to bring people into the kingdom. 
And I'm going to tell you, that's one thing oh, I know Jesus is true because I see people everywhere. I, I know people in New Zealand, in China. I Just the other day, I saw two black sisters evangelists walk into one of these riot-torn cities. I don't know which one in America. This is August of 20, uh, September, actually, of 2020, and there's riots. There have been riots for two or three months now. And they walk in there, and they go up to these protesters and these rioters, and they say, the only answer is Jesus. And, of course, the rioters start giving them a hard time, and they come right back at them. And I'm thinking, man, does it got the, the, the testimony of the gospel goes everywhere, even into riot-torn cities. Revelation 5, verse 7, And he, that's Jesus, came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Him who sat on the throne, of course, is God. The book is the scroll. New American Standard calls it a book, but it's the scroll. And Jesus came. And again, that came refers to Daniel 7, 13. Jesus is walking up to God on the throne, just like Jesus in Daniel 7, 13 came up to the Ancient of Days on the throne. Let me read that again. Key verse. Daniel 7:13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, just like he's come into the Ancient of Days in Revelation 5, 7. Verse 14, and there was given him dominion and glory and the kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom. Notice how much kingdom and dominion, dominion and kingdom and kingdom and dominion is mentioned there in Daniel 7:13. That's what Jesus is doing here in Revelation 5. He's going up to God the Father, and he's getting ready to take his kingdom to establish his new covenant. And, of course, in order to establish the new covenant, the persecuting Jews have to be destroyed, which is going to take up a good bit of the book of Revelation coming up shortly. You notice that the book is in the right hand of God. That, that's the position of authority next to a king. That, once again, emphasizes the authority of God the Father. We go now to Revelation 5, 8. When he had taken the book, that's when Jesus had taken the book, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, it says each one holding a harp. That's apparently each one of the 24 elders. And each one of the elders had a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So you've got elders. they got crowns on their heads. That represents ruling authority and remember the elders stand for the covenant people of god which is now the church so the church the elders have crown on their heads they're dressed in white which means they're righteous and pure and holy they've got a harp harp is music they're ready to praise the god they're praising the lord and they got golden bowls full of incense incense is a standard metaphor for prayer so they're praying so the church is praying it's praising and it's ruling and it's righteous symbolism is not hard I said incense is the typical symbol for the prayers of the saints. Let's back that up a little bit. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. Their prayer is directly identified with incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The reason that incense is such a good symbol for prayer is because it it wafts on up into heaven. It, 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 it floats from the earth up into heaven like our prayers go from here on earth up to heaven. Luke 1.10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. So their prayer is associated with incense in the temple prayer ritual, which is very well attested by the Jews. I think it took about an hour for all that prayer ceremony in the, in the morning to take place. And there was incense associated with it. So incense is prayer. The incense burns up in the smoke, so the smoke is the refined essence of the offering. 
Our prayers are the very essence of our being, and they go up into heaven, just like incense is the very refined essence of those frankincense and myrrh, whatever it was, balsam, whatever it was that they made the incense with. That incense would be burnt, and then the essence then would be concentrated in that smoke, and it would go up to heaven. And smoke ascends as prayers do, as I mentioned. Another interesting fact is the golden altar of incense in the Old Testament tabernacle, or the Old Testament temple for that matter, is located next to the curtain which covers the doorway to the Holy of Holies as you walk in from the holy place, going from east to west. That shows that prayer is near to the heart of God. That golden incense was burning all the time, smoke going up in the, in the tabernacle. And it shows that prayer needs to not cease. It needs to keep right on without stopping. So the smoke, the incense is the aroma of praise, like the harps in the new song, song that's being sung by the elders, as we'll see in verse 9. They are, and they're holding harps in verse 8. The harps in the new song are the sound of praise, and the incense is the aroma of praise and prayer. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song that they is referring to the 24 elders. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now the elders are singing a new song. Buscor mentions that in Exodus 15, they are going to sing the song of Moses. And a new song is associated with the song they sing as they leave the captivity of Egypt and they enter into the promised land, which is a symbol of the new covenant. But we don't have to go there yet until we get to chapter 15. We can look right now at seven times in the Old Testament where that phrase new song is mentioned. And David Chilton's got an interesting observation here. He says that new song is always mentioned in the Old Testament along with creative and redemptive acts of God. Now we're going to look through that and see if he's right about that. And if he is, this shows that in Revelation, God is getting ready to do something. Singing a new song, that means, hey, the new covenant is about to get established. New song, new covenant. A new covenant needs a new song. The old covenant had the old song of Moses, but now we have a new covenant, and it needs a new song. Well, let's look at the Old Testament mentions of a new song, seven of them. Psalm 33, 3, sing unto him a new song, play skillfully with a loud noise. The next two verses talk about God's works. All his works are done in truth. Verse 4, chapter 33, Psalm, verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done. So there we see God doing something. And that's why we're singing a new song. Because God's getting ready to do something. Psalm 43, and he hath put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Doing something is not explicitly mentioned there, but there is a new song. Psalm 96, 1, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Verse 2 of Psalm 96, the very next verse says this, Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. There's salvation. That's a work of God. Salvation. Psalm 144, 9, I will sing a new song unto thee. Verse, very next verse, verse 10. It is he that gives salvation unto kings. So a new song is associated with salvation. Psalm 149.1, Praise ye the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song. The very next verse, verse 2, Psalm 149, Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. So there's rejoicing associated with the new song. Psalm 40, Isaiah 42.10, Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea, and all that is in therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. And then we look at the previous verse, Isaiah 42, 9, and we see this. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. 
So there you see the new song is associated with something new that is about to spring forth at the hand of God. God's about to do something, about to do something new. So that's what it means when you see new song in the book of Revelation by the elders. God's about to establish something new. He's going from the old covenant to the new covenant. Because that scroll, that, that book, that scroll with the seven seals represents the new covenant. The elders say, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men. Purchase, of course, it sounds like blood redemption. You, you purchase a slave out of slavery by paying the redemption price, the purchase price. Jesus paid blood, his life is the price to buy us out of our slavery to sin. And that, of course, is the very foundation of the new covenant. That's why the 24 elders are singing a new song. And notice that these men that are purchased... They are from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, which I just said. They're all over the world. New Zealand, China, California even. There's a couple. Nah, there's actually a few more than a couple. Even in New York City, there's people that believe. Even in Detroit. Even in Chicago. Even in the most godless places on earth. Even in Sodom and Gomorrah. Even in the United States of America. You will find people that have been purchased by God. by Purchased for God by the Lamb who was slain. By the blood of the Lamb who was slain. Notice that phrase, all people, nations, and languages, that's mentioned in Revelation 5 9, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That reflects the same language that's in Daniel 7 13. Well, Daniel says, when the Son of Man goes up to the Ancient of Days to inherit a kingdom, he says he does that in order that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. So you even have the same language. So you see the close connection between Daniel 7 13 and 14 and Revelation. Chapter 5, The Inheritance of the Kingdom by Jesus. Now, a little technical note here that is of not great importance, but it's kind of interesting. The New American Standard Bible and most modern English translations translate this phrase here, and purchase for God with your blood men. So men are purchased with God. But it's interesting that most of the Greek manuscripts say us, that the Lamb purchased for God the elders say that the that you, the Lamb, have purchased for God with your blood us from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, I only found three English translations that went along with the most great manuscripts, and that bothers me because, you know, you're supposed to use the Greek, not your translator's bias. The old King James, I've said a lot of bad things about the King James, but in this case, I think they're exactly right. They stick to the Greek. The King James says that the that Jesus purchased for God us meaning the 24 elders were included in the purchase. I looked at J.P. Green's literal translation, Young's literal translation, same thing. Us, because that's what the Greek says. Now, why would people put men, translators, translated, purchase for God with your blood, men? Well, I guess the phrase every tribe and tongue and people and nation makes you think about a bunch of men all over, a bunch of people all over the earth. Maybe so. But notice what it also does. If the 24 elders are considered to be angels, as some people think, then you can't say that Jesus' blood purchased from us, purchased, purchased us for God with Jesus' blood. Can't say that because angels aren't purchased by Jesus' blood. They never fell. So they don't need to be purchased by Jesus' blood. So I think there's some bias there and people are trying to make the, the text sound a little bit better than it than what these translators think it sounds like. Well, it seems to me that if you take it as it, set, as it is, purchase, that Jesus purchased for God with his blood, us, the us stands for the 24 elders, and the 24 elders stand for the whole church of Jesus Christ, and also the Old Testament people of God too. So that means that Jesus 
purchased us, meaning the redeemed community, because the 24 elders stand for the redeemed community, the church of God, and there's no problem. So why don't we translate it straight? I don't know. We go to verse 10, Revelation 5. You have made them, and the King James says us, and so we're going to stick with the old King James here. You have made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Actually, this is the New American Standard, except I changed them to us, as the KGV has it. You have made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Or it should be, we will reign upon the earth. I should have just read the King James there for Revelation 5.10 and had made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, so that's the 24 elders representing the whole church. And we shall reign on the earth. That shows that the church is going to reign on the earth. He mentions kingdom and priest right here in this verse. We're we're going to be made a kingdom. If you're in a kingdom, that means somebody's got to rule the kingdom. And that's the church. The 24 elders, they're wearing crowns. They're sitting on thrones. They're ruling. And they're going to be priests too. Kingdoms and priests. This is an obvious reference to the church. We read in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. A holy nation. Now, a holy nation is a kingdom, a peculiar people. Now, if the church is a holy nation, it's a kingdom now because it says you are. Peter tells his readers, you are a chosen generation. That means the church's reign has begun now, not 2,000 plus years in the future, but now. You have made them or us as unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So they already are made kings and priests, and their rule will continue on into the future. Now, where will the church reign? Will they reign in heaven? Well, that's not what it says. It says, we, the church, shall reign on the earth. We are promised increasing victories, rule, and dominion on this earth. What does the Lord's Prayer say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on what? Fill in the blank. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven as it is in heaven? No, it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Contrast the Amils who tend to say that the victory is in heaven. The Amils love to do that because they don't like post-millennialism, unfortunately. I'm post-mill. I believe that we will have dominion on the earth. That's what John says here in Revelation. Now, the Old Testament Testament typology matches this, Exodus 19.6, And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, that's what Peter quoted in 1 Peter 2.9, as I just read. Now, this idea that Christians... Reign begins now, i.e. at the time of John's writing, and that Jesus' reign starts at the same time because Jesus reigns and his church reigns together. Let's look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. If you're sitting with Jesus on his throne, that means you are ruling with him because that's what thrones are for. That's where rulers sit on thrones, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So we've got God the Father on the throne, we've got God the Son on the throne, and we've got the one who conquers on the throne, as well as the elders on their thrones in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. So everybody's ruling here, guys. The good guys are ruling. This is a book of encouragement for those who were persecuted terribly by the apostate Jewish kingdom of the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We go down to verse 11, Revelation 5. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands. That's a whole heap of. To put it in modern English, the angels fill out the heavenly choir when they're added to the four creatures who are singing, and the elders who are singing, the angels are singing too. Revelation 5, 12. 
These angels are saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. Of course, that's a famous hymn. There's a lot of hymns come out of Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb. Why? Because he was the only one that could break the seals of that book, of that will, that testament, which was the new covenant. That, of course, this singing of the angels and the creatures and the elders, that singing was answering the questions the question that was asked of the angel by the angel in Revelation 5, 2, about 10 verses previous. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Well, here's the answer. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's who's worthy. And of course, when he, he receives, again, he, he receives his own inheritance, if you will. He opens the will. And what does he get in the new covenant? Power. Riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. All good things. So all of creation gave a thunderous answer to that question. And riches, of course, are spiritual riches, not material riches. All the riches of the new covenant. The Lamb is going to receive that. And, of course, he's the head, we're the body. We're going to receive it with him. Revelation 5:13 and 14. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So now we've got angels, we've got the creation with the four living creatures, we've got the elders, and now in this heavenly scene, we see every created thing, which is, and this is the Jewish way, Jewish way of saying everything that exists, going from top to bottom. In heaven, that's the highest on earth. Under the earth, on earth would be in heaven would be angels, on earth would be people and animals, and under the earth would be earthworms and bugs and such, and on the sea would be boats, and I guess people on the sea and all things in them would be, well, on the sea might be whales and dolphins, I don't know, and things in the sea would be fish and so forth. But the point is, it's just everything is worshiping God to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice that the Lamb receives praise, God the Son receives praise just like God the Father does. He gets the same worship because he is God. Now, of course, to God and the Lamb, God the Father and God the Son, they get blessing and honor and glory, of course. They also get dominion forever and ever. Dominion means rule, the right to rule. And that's one of the themes of this book, dominion. Now, I realize certain theonomists have picked up on this theme of dominion in Revelation and turned it into a theology which I personally find abhorrent dominion theology or theonomist theology, but hey, every error is based on some truth somewhere, and there's one truth that has been overlooked by certain dispensationalists, and that is the church and Jesus have dominion. They have rule in their kingdom, and their kingdom is leveling the world right now, thank God. So dominion is the theme of the book. It's the goal of history. The ragtag, compromised, weak seven churches of Revelation needed to know that the church was triumphant. And John is telling them, hey, you ain't got nothing to worry about. Ladies and gentlemen, we finished chapter 5 of Revelation. In our next audio, we'll take up chapter 6, the first eight verses, and we'll look at the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse as the first seal, the first four seals are opened. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.